Good morning. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, I invite you to turn with me to the New Testament book of 2 Thessalonians, towards the back of the New Testament. If you're using a pew Bible, you'll find it on page 1259. Last year, we finished the book of 1 Thessalonians, and uh, this morning we're going to pick up studying 2 Thessalonians. And while you're finding your place there, I want to just say a few words of thanks to you. I want to thank you, first of all, for the privilege that you've given me over the last three years to go back to school and to study. I want to thank you especially for your patience and endurance uh, where I mismanaged decisions, forgot responsibilities, and failed to give you the pastoral care at times that you are accustomed to. I want to uh, thank all of the elders and deacons in particular who stepped up in uh, ways that you have seen and in ways that you haven't seen uh, to free me to study. And for all the men who faithfully filled the pulpit and taught Bible studies in my absence. Uh, I also want to thank Miss Anna for guarding my schedule and guarding my office doors so that I could study. And for Rick, who came to the office just about every day in my absence to make sure that uh, everything was covered and in good shape. Uh, it wouldn't have been possible to complete school without all of that help and without your support. And so I want you to know that I really appreciate that. And I need to publicly thank my wife, my partner in life and ministry, and for the last six weeks, my editor, <laughs> who sat across from the dining room table with me for weeks on end, uh, making our children orphans. And as fast as I could write, that's as fast as she edited. Uh, correcting all my M dashes and N dashes and whatever else I did wrong. And I want to thank my children publicly, too, for their patience uh, in not having time with their dad for a while and for their encouragement and for counting down the days uh, to when the project would be completed. My first semester in the doctoral ministry program, I had a lecture entitled 10 Ways to Fail in the Doctorate of Ministry Program. Pretty catchy title. And it was actually a very, very helpful lecture. And one of the ways they said you'll fail the Doctorate of Ministry Program is if you don't include your church family and bring them along with you. And so I want to say to you publicly this morning that my family and I felt your prayers, your encouragement, your support, and that you were behind us, helping us get across the finish line. And we couldn't have done it without you. And so I want to make sure that you know that this morning. And then the last thing I want to say, and then I'm going to preach, is that I wanted to go back to school because I wanted to improve as a preacher. And these last three years have challenged me in ways I've never been challenged before in my life. And I feel that it's grown me and helped me. And another reason I wanted to go was to benefit the congregation. And so I know I've been benefited, and I pray in the years to come that you will receive the benefit as well. So thank you. Now let's turn to 2 Thessalonians. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. We're going to read the first four verses together, and I'm going to speak on this subject today, encouragement in difficult times. Second Thessalonians chapter 1. And this is what the Word of God says. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, 
to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are doing and enduring. When I started school, I had to pick a project that, that would complete my studies at the end of the third year. And little did I know, uh, almost three years ago, when I picked the subject of suffering, all that our church family would go through, all that my family would go through, that a pandemic would come and we would all live through that. Little did I know before all of those events that suffering would be so relevant. There's not a person in this room this morning that doesn't understand what it's like to live through difficult days and through difficult seasons. The Apostle Paul understood what it was like to live through difficult days and difficult seasons. And after a brief stay in the city of Thessalonica, he and Silas and Timothy were run out because of their preaching of the gospel. And as they were ushered out of that city, they planted and formed a young, new church full of believers that were very young in the faith. And after Paul and Silas and Timothy were removed from Thessalonica, after a time had passed, Paul sent Timothy back to check on them. And Timothy brought Paul back a great report of how they were doing And that led Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to write the book of 1 Thessalonians, to give them instruction and encouragement and help them to grow and become more established as a church and more established as believers in their faith. But within a matter of weeks or possibly months after writing that first letter, the book of 1 Thessalonians, Word came back to the Apostle Paul that this young church was struggling greatly. And so Paul, again, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit of God, picked up his stylus and papyrus, and he wrote the letter of 2 Thessalonians. And what you find when you read this short letter is that the problems that plagued the church in 1 Thessalonians are still plaguing the church in 2 Thessalonians, but they've increased in their intensity. And there were three major problems in this church that Paul will address in the book of 2 Thessalonians. Number one, persecution had continued and it was even growing And Paul will spend the majority of the first chapter of 2 Thessalonians to address this issue of persecution. Hostility to the Christian faith had been evident since Paul's initial visit when he was forcibly removed. But it's resurfaced here in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. The church was facing persecution and affliction and suffering in a greater way than it had ever experienced before. And so Paul wrote to encourage them and strengthen them and help them bear up under this suffering. The second concern that Paul had in this book was that deception and false teaching had once again entered the congregation, and Paul needed to deal with it. And he will spend the majority of chapter 2 dealing with this false teaching. You see, this young church had received a report, supposedly from the Apostle Paul himself, that the day of the Lord, the return of Jesus Christ, had already taken place. 
And this young congregation was confused because in their understanding, if the day of the Lord takes place, their suffering will be over because Jesus will right all wrongs and relieve them of their suffering. And so they were confused and questioning issues surrounding the day of the Lord and the Apostle Paul will deal with those. And the third concern that Paul had for this church was that disobedience had continued in the church family and it had to be dealt with. And he will spend the majority of chapter 3 dealing with this disobedience. If you remember from many months ago in 1 Thessalonians, Paul addressed those who had become idle in the church, who were refusing to work and who were sitting around and waiting for the day of the Lord to return. And these folks had grown in their idleness and they were causing disruption and disharmony in the church. And Paul will deal decisively with them. So this young, newly formed, newly planted church was being chased on the outside by persecutors and was being challenged on the inside by false teachers. And on top of all of that, they had the temptations of living in a secular city surrounding them. And they were full of doubts about their future. And it was plaguing them and crushing them. And it was causing them to wonder whether they would be able to remain faithful. William Barclay suggests that the Thessalonians had most likely sent a message to the Apostle Paul conveying these doubts. And that's why Paul picked up his pen and began to write to them. And then William Barclay makes this observation about Paul's words. Paul's answer to this church was not to punish them into the, or push them into the sloth of despond by agreeing with them. It was to pick out their virtues and their achievements in such a way that these despondent, frightened Christians would square their shoulders and fling back their heads and say, well, if Paul thinks that of us, will make a fight of it, end quote. And friends, that's exactly what Paul is doing in this letter. He picked up his pen to write to discouraged Christians and to a troubled church and to infuse encouragement in them in the midst of difficult times so that they would fight on. And he encouraged them with Four simple truths. And that's what I'm going to encourage you with this morning. Now, let me say at the outset that these are not revolutionary. Like, you're going to see these straight out of the pages of Scripture. I've used almost exactly word for word out of the text these four points. And it's not going to be anything profound. It, that's why I said they're simple. And it's probably not going to be anything that you haven't heard before. But it's four truths that all of us need to be reminded of. And so let's begin with the first one. He encourages them by reminding them of their position of grace in verses 1 and 2. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians and God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. If you compare the opening words of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 with the opening words of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, they are nearly identical. There is just one subtle difference that actually makes all of the difference in the world. In 1 Thessalonians 1.1, 1, 1, Paul says that the church is in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verse 1, the church is described as being in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the change to the word our makes all the difference in the world. 
And with the use of the word our, Paul is identifying himself at the beginning of this letter with his brothers and sisters in Christ in Thessalonica. He is saying that I am one of you. I am counted among your number. We are all brothers and sisters in Christ. And he is emphasizing to them and to us the theological truth that when you come to know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and you become a believer in Christ, you are adopted into the family of God. And so at the very outset of this letter, Paul is reminding them of the wonderful theological truth of the adoption of God and bringing us into his family. Now, in one of the key verses to the book of 2 Thessalonians, the Apostle Paul elaborates on God's work of adoption, describing how this adoption in bringing us into the family of God took place. If you look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 and verse 16, this is what Paul tells them about this adoption. And it's really almost the form of a prayer that he is praying on their behalf. And he says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, look carefully, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. That is how our adoption into the family of God takes place. God sets his love and affection on the unlovable, you and me. And God, in his mercy and in his grace, he lavishes his love on us. And when we were separated from him in our trespasses and sins, having no life in God, having no relationship with God, in fact, the Bible would say that God was not our father. The devil was our father. We were totally separated from him. And in that moment when we were separated from him and couldn't go to him, he came to us through his son and he lavished his love on us through his son. He demonstrated his love for us by giving his son to live a perfect life of righteousness that you and I could never live by dying for our debt of sin that we deserve to die for and by raising his son from the grave as a, as a reminder that he has accepted what his son has done for us. And it is through the work of his son and the love that he sets on us through his son Jesus that we are adopted and we are brought in to the family of God. And Paul says in verse 16 of chapter 2 that this brings eternal comfort to us and it brings good hope to us. And it's all a work of God's grace that there's not a single thing any of us can do to earn our adoption into the family of God. That from beginning to end, it is a total act of God's grace. And God lavishes his love and his grace on us. And he takes us in our sin. And he brings us forgiven through the blood of his son into his family. So that we can be called the sons and daughters of the most high God. And when we receive Christ as our savior, God becomes our father. But he's not finished emphasizing this great doctrine of adoption. Look carefully in verse 1 to the text. He says to the church of the Thessalonians, in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a wonderful truth that is weaved all throughout the Apostle Paul's letters. John MacArthur says of the importance of this word in in this passage, that the truth that Christians are in personal, spiritual, and eternal union with God is unique to Christianity. Adherents of other religions do not speak of being in their God. 
But the Bible teaches that those who put their faith in Christ become partakers of the divine nature, sharing eternal life with God through faith and identification with his son. When we are adopted into the family of God, we don't just receive God as our father. We are identified with God and we are identified with his son. We are blessed in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. We are redeemed through Christ. We are forgiven through Christ. We are bought by Christ. We are in Christ. And that's why Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We are one in Christ. So that God no longer looks at us and sees us. He looks at us and he sees his Son. We are united in the very life of Christ. And all of this is made possible through our adoption into the family of God. And you'll notice in verse 1 that Paul placed the Lord Jesus Christ alongside God the Father, clearly affirming Christ's deity as God and being fully equal with the Father. Now, now I'm building truth here for you, and I'm going to tie it all together in a second. You just need to stay with me and follow this progression of the text. God is our Father. We are in Christ and God the Father and God the Son are one. And in John chapter 10, when Jesus talked about being the great shepherd of the sheep, he talked about this relationship between he and his Father and how that affects the relationship with the sheep, you and me. And this is what he says in John chapter 10, verses 27 to 30. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Listen, my Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Security. When God is your Father, and you are in Christ, you are held in the hand of your heavenly father and you are held in the hand of the son your savior the one you are united with and nothing and no one no matter how difficult no matter how frightening can snatch you from their hands you are doubly secure in them and with all of these simple truths, in verse 1, Paul is reminding this suffering church that the source of their strength and the source of their endurance and the source of their comfort in times of difficulty is God the Father and God the Son. And what Paul was reminding them of, he is reminding you and I of this morning, our security in our position of grace in God the Father and God the Son. But you'll notice in verse 2 that he's not finished describing this position of grace that we have. He says that out of this union with God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ flows grace and peace. You understand what grace is. It is God's unmerited favor. It is getting something that we don't deserve. And Paul loves this word, and he uses this word four times in this short letter. But friends, grace is more than just saving us and adopting us into the family of God. Grace is what keeps us in the family of God. Grace is what equips us to endure the difficulties of life. It doesn't just save us. It keeps us saved. It equips us. It strengthens us. It encompasses the whole saving work of God through his son. And peace, 
Peace is the resultant characteristic of receiving and experiencing God's grace. And Paul, by using these two words, grace and peace, is expressing his desire for the Thessalonian believers to experience the ongoing grace of God and the peace of God in their lives in the midst of their difficulties and their troubles. He wants this church and he wants you and me to be gripped by the reality of our relationship with God through Jesus Christ. And everything that... Paul will say to this church in the remainder of this letter is based on grace and peace flowing out of their adoption into the family of God. He was reminding the Thessalonian Christians and discouraged Christians everywhere that the position of grace in Jesus Christ is secure, that it's not based on our circumstances, that neither persecution, nor false teaching, nor human weakness will be able to defeat us because we are secure in grace. God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within. And this is what he is encouraging them with. That they would be gripped by the position of grace that they find themselves in. And I can't think of a better reminder at the beginning of a new year than this one. That we need to be reminded if we know Christ as our Savior, we have been adopted into the family of God. That we've experienced a grace that not only saves us, but a grace that will keep us. And a grace that will not only keep us, but a grace that will strengthen us and equip us and help us endure. And I say to you this morning that if you are not confident where you stand in your relationship with God, that this simple truth that you need Christ to be brought into the family of God would become a reality in your life. And that you would know before you leave today what it means to know Christ as your Savior and to have your sins forgiven and to be a legitimate party of the family of God. And for those who are Christians, that you wouldn't take for granted your position of grace. That you wouldn't allow the difficulties in your circumstances and your struggles and your fears to rob you of the security that you have in the grace of God. You stand firmly secure in God's grace this morning. And no one or nothing can snatch you from that grace, no matter how difficult. Well... He not only reminds them and encourages them of their position of grace. Secondly, he reminds them and encourages them of their growing faith. Look at the beginning of verse 3. We ought always to give thanks for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly. The word ought in the ESV is a significant, powerful word. It refers to a deep obligation. It refers to a debt or a responsibility. It is often used in the New Testament of a man who is in debt and who has to pay what he owes. And here's what Paul is saying. He's saying that he has no choice but to always give thanks to God for the Thessalonians. Why? Because, as you will see, God has done something so notable and significant in the lives of these Christians that Paul was brought under a burden. He was bound, he was bound by compulsion to give thanks to God and to worship God for what God has done in the lives of these new Christians. And what he was worshiping and thanking God for was their unusual spiritual progress that had taken place in such a short period of time. 
These believers were new to the faith. This was a newly formed church. They were starting from scratch. And Paul says as he writes this second letter to them that they were growing abundantly. That's what the text says. They were growing abundantly. And this is an intense compound word that could be translated. They were increasing beyond measure. They were growing beyond what could be expected. It was a very vigorous growth. And if you'll remember back in the book of 1 Thessalonians, Paul had been concerned about their faith. When he was forced to leave, one of the things that he wrote to them about in 1 Thessalonians was that their faith had started out strong in the beginning, that it had been greatly tested through persecution, and that part of it had been found lacking in his prayer and his desire was that God would allow him to go back to this church and add to them what was lacking in their faith. And he encouraged them in the midst of their persecution to put on the breastplate of faith. And all of that is found throughout the book of 1 Thessalonians. And so can you imagine when he received report that this church had experienced unusual spiritual growth, the joy that he felt as their spiritual leader over what God had done in their lives? Because this was actually an answer of prayer for him. And God had answered it in an abundant way. The Thessalonians' faith had grown not only despite persecution, but because of it. Because persecution will always destroy false faith. And I would say to you, difficulties will always destroy false faith. Do you know that's what Jesus taught? In the parable of the soils, Jesus taught when temptations and trials come, if faith not, is not real, it will destroy it. Listen to what he said in Matthew chapter 13, verses 20 to 21. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. Did you hear that? He immediately falls away. Every difficulty, whether it's persecution, suffering, affliction, every difficulty is an opportunity to grow in faith. And in the midst of the difficulties that were surrounding this church, they grew abundantly in their faith. And I want to remind all of us this morning that our faith in difficult times will either grow and flourish and cause us to draw near to God or it will shrink and flounder and cause us to draw away from God. And so I would simply ask you this morning, how is your faith? It's a simple truth. Is it growing abundantly? Or would you have to say this morning that your faith is stagnant? That the difficulties of the last two years, the broken relationships, the struggles, the pain, the suffering, the circumstances that have surrounded your life have done a number on your faith. It's caused you to shrink back. Could I ask you as your shepherd this morning, if your trials are drawing you closer to God or further away from Him? Are you more dependent upon God this morning than you were a year ago? Or are you just trying to hang in there on your own power? Could I ask you this morning, what's your plan to grow? How are you going to grow? For those of you that have chosen not to come back to church yet, how are you going to grow apart from your church family? For those of you in church, how are you going to grow in this year? What active steps are you going to do to make progress in your faith? I'll tell you this. 
If the last two years haven't taught us anything, we better have learned this lesson. You can't coast in your faith because if you coast when the difficulties come, you will not endure. You won't. So they had a position of grace. And they were growing abundantly in their faith. Number three, he encouraged them and reminded them of their increasing love. Oh, I love this next statement. Look at it carefully. It's the latter half of verse three. And the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. If you go back and you read through 1 Thessalonians again, you know what you'll find? That this was a loving church. Paul tells them that they were taught by God to love. And Paul exhorted them to love more and more. And Paul even urged them to put on the breastplate of love. And like their growing faith, their increasing love was an answer to prayer. Paul prayed this on their behalf in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 and verse 12. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. He prayed that they would increase in love for one another. And now his prayer has been answered. The word increasing signifies a diffusive or expansive character as of a flood irrigating the land. Here's what I thought of. I thought of the diffuser that my wife has placed in a certain part of the house and puts essential oils in it and diffuses them throughout the whole house. It permeates everything. And that's the picture of love in this church. It's diffused throughout the whole body, affecting everyone in the church. No one in the church is untouched by this love. Do you see what the text says? I'm not making this up. Look at it. The love of every one of you for one of another. All of them were included. It's exactly what Jesus said before he went to the cross to his disciples. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. That's the test. That's the test of how you know your faith is growing and real. That you love your brothers and sisters in Christ. A genuine love for them. Paul taught the Ephesian believers that they were to walk in this kind of love. And in Ephesians chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, this is what he said. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul told the Ephesian believers, and he's telling us that we are to imitate God in the way that we love. We are to be diffusers of love throughout the assembly, loving and touching everyone. And I would remind you this morning that there is a strong correlation between a growing faith and an increasing love. There's a strong correlation in the text of these first four verses between growing faith and increasing love. And there is strong correlation throughout the Bible and in the Christian life. Because the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit that you're a true Christian, is love. Love is proof that your faith is real. You cannot fake love there's a direct correlation if your faith is growing if you're growing in your knowledge of God and his word at the same time that your faith and your knowledge is growing your love for God and for the people of God and for the things of God should be increasing 
And I would say to you this morning, out of love and compassion, that if you believe that you're growing in faith, but you're not increasing in love, there's something wrong with your growth. It's either all head knowledge, or you're just learning a bunch of facts that have never affected your life. But when it's true growth in faith, it will show itself in demonstrations of love. And if you're struggling loving this morning, it may be because you're not growing in your faith. The normal Christian life is to grow in faith and to grow in love at the same time. How can you not understand and grasp a new truth about God that you've seen in His Word or heard proclaimed for the first time and not grow in love for Him? And how can you not, if you're growing in your faith, be moved by compassion and love for people who are struggling around you? There's a direct correlation. And I would say to you this morning that growing faith and increasing love are marks of a healthy church. That a church needs both. That it's really dangerous for a church to grow in faith and that growth in faith never translate into love. It will become a very cold, rigid, legalistic, church. Love is what demonstrates the growing faith. Philip Arthur said, it is vital that Christians pray that love of this kind would permeate our churches to an increasing measure. For when love begins to diminish, friction increases and churches fall apart. I want you to listen carefully to how I'm going to apply this, because I'm probably going to make some people mad, both in the room and at home watching on the live stream. By God's sovereign providence, I've been praying what Paul wrote about at the beginning of this book for months for our congregation, that we would grow in love for one another. Do you pray that prayer? At home, do you pray that prayer? Do you pray for this kind of love to be permeated through the congregation? Through your life? Through your family? Can you honestly say this morning that you're increasing in your love for every single person? In the First Baptist Church of Wheeling family? I've been troubled as your pastor. I've heard comments that have broken my heart. How can we just let all kinds of new people in? Everybody's taking over. And whether it's feeling threatened or offended or jealous, I just want to say to you as lovingly as I can, the problem is, not with the church. The problem's in your heart. And what's going on in your heart? Have you forgotten that you were once new and you were once welcomed? Have you forgotten what it was like to come into a room with a bunch of strange-looking people that you don't know? And how you were welcomed and received. Have you forgotten what it's like to be welcomed into the family of God through Jesus Christ himself? The problem's in your heart. You're not loving. You're not increasing in love. Whether it's pride or offense. Because you've just grown cold and don't care. I want to say to you lovingly that this text demands that you search your heart over love. 
And I also want to remind you that you're not so new anymore. And the same thing could happen to you. Many of you have been around for a while. Do you intentionally go and look for people that you don't know, church? Or do you let them slip out the back door unengaged? It is a dangerous place when a church stops loving everyone. Everyone. It's a dangerous place. And I want to tell you, this, this place, I, I, I've been to other churches. Some of you have too. There are some very special things that take place in this church. And if you're not careful, if I'm not careful, if we're not careful, we will grow cold and this will no longer be a place of refuge. And it needs to be a place of refuge for the hurting. It needs to be a place of security. It needs to be a place of love. If we are all members of the body of Christ, we're going to spend eternity together. And this is the dry run for eternity, so we might as well get it right here. And love, and increase in love. And I am praying, and I am inviting you as a church to join me in praying that our love for one another will increase Goodness gracious, there are so many special people in this congregation. And if you haven't met them, you're missing out. If we ever stop extending love and caring for new people, we might as well just close the doors. We'll die. We'll die. And so I pray... It will never lose the culture and atmosphere of love and compassion and grace in this place. Well, they had a position of grace. They were growing in their faith. They were increasing in love. And finally, in verse 4, they were enduring in faithfulness. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Do you notice how he's connecting all these thoughts together in the text? Do you see it with the word therefore at the beginning of verse 4? Because you're growing in faith, because you are increasing in love, I am boasting to you, to the other churches, about your example. You know what I found fascinating about Paul's boasting here? Do you know who one of the churches he was probably speaking to about the Thessalonians was? The Corinthians. The most troubled of all churches. He's saying, you all are messed up. Look at the Thessalonians. They're growing in faith. They're increasing in love. You could learn something from them. And all of this happened, look in verse 4, through persecutions from without and afflictions and trials from within. But they were steadfast. It literally means that they were courageous in the enduring of trouble. That they remained under their trials and their tribulations with hope. They didn't quit. They didn't give up. This wasn't a grim perseverance. This was enduring hope. That they were under difficulty. They were struggling. They were being trusted, tested and tried. But they endured with hope. And notice what the text says. Faith. It literally means faithfulness. They remained faithful under their difficulties. Barclay says of all of this language about steadfastness and persevering and enduring, he says it describes the spirit which does not only patiently endure the circumstances in which it finds itself, but which masters them and uses them to strengthen its own nerve and sinew. It accepts the blows of life, but in accepting them, it transforms them into stepping stones to new achievement. Hope. 
Did their circumstances change? No. Did they remain hopeful? Yes. Did they use their difficulties and their trials and their struggles to move forward in their faith and in their love and in their walk and service with God? Yes. They endured faithfully to the end. Listen to what Paul said about endurance in the context of trials and difficulties in Romans chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Therefore, since we have been justified with, by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. More than that, we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. That is perseverance. That is enduring faithfully. Remembering that you're standing in a position of grace. That you're growing in faith. You're increasing in love. You're remaining steadfast. Therefore, you have hope. And your hope will never disappoint. Because your hope is found in the glory of God. Who will make all things right and rescue you from all trouble at the end of age. That is steadfast, faithful hope. And that's where this struggling church was. My favorite description or picture of discouragement in the Bible is where in the New Testament it talks about how you become so weary in your soul that, that you give up. And Paul counsels not to grow weary in well-doing and be so weary in your soul that you give up. And here's the literal picture of his words. It's unstringing the bow. That you've been in a battle. You've got your bow and your arrows and you're so defeated and you're so discouraged by the battle and the difficulties, you just literally unstring your bow and give up. This church could have done that. But they didn't. They didn't give up. They reached out to Paul for counsel. It reminded me of Paul's closing words to Timothy. In 2 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 5. As for you, Timothy, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. And fulfill your ministry. The phrase sober-minded, it literally means this. Keep your head. It's a good word, church. In your difficulties, in your circumstances, endure faithfully. Keep your head. Keep your head. Stay sober-minded. So are you enduring faithfully or have you given up? This church needed encouragement in the midst of difficult circumstances. And when it was on the verge of losing hope, Paul encouraged them by reminding them of four simple truths. Their position of grace, their growing faith, their increasing love, and their enduring faithfulness. And what Paul encouraged them with is the same encouraging reminders that you and I need to endure faithfully to the end. And I pray by God's grace that he will help us do that. Let's pray.